Hello, this is Leslie Gartha Tenzer, and this is Law to Fact. Today I'm speaking with Professor John Hombach about criminal law. So I'm really excited to share today's episode with you. I'm speaking with my colleague, John Humbach, about the theoretical underpinnings of criminal law. Professor Humbach currently teaches criminal law, and I taught criminal law for more years than I want to admit. We sat down together to discuss the kind of information that students really need to know, but it isn't really taught during that first year of doctrinal criminal law. It's an important conversation for anyone studying or planning on practicing criminal law, as it puts all the stuff you learn, mens rea, homicide, mistake, etc., in context. Once again, it's time for my plea. If you could rate us or subscribe to us on any of the platforms on which you listen to us, or like us on social media platforms, I would really appreciate this. What keeps me going is knowing that I'm helping law students learn the law, and the more feedback I get, the more inspired I am. And as always, you can contact us. You can reach us at gmail at lawtofact at gmail.com, or you can tweet us at lawtofact. And all of our episodes are available at all times at www.lawtofact.com. If you're listening to Law to Fact, chances are at some point you'll be taking the bar exam. Well, getting ready for the bar exam means you'll need to choose the study program that's right for you. Kaplan Bar Review will get you ready to take on test day with confidence by offering $100 off live and on-demand bar review with offer code LESLIE100. Visit www.kaplanbarreview.com today to sign up. Here's my discussion with Professor Humbach. All right, so one of the things that I um, am always upset about is that I don't find that I get to spend enough time on theory, on context, and so for students who are about to study criminal law, and even students who have, I'm wondering if you could spend a little time kind of putting criminal law and the criminal justice system in context in a way that certainly um, faculty don't do necessarily in the very beginning, but um, it's sometimes hard to have time for that at all in your semester. Right. Well, I mean, in class, we have to focus on the law as it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and despite the fact that the law sits in a dynamic context, and the criminal law in particular is, is undergoing change right now, maybe very dynamic change, uh, compared with, say, the situation 20 years ago when getting tough on crime and increasing sentences and increasing the amount of car- incarceration uh, were uh, widely accepted goals, and now that is coming un- in, into question. And uh, the uh, criminal law that we study today is basically what came out of of that earlier period. Uh, And students need to know that because that's going to be the the real life that they'll have when they get out of law school. Uh, But it is moving and they need to know about that too. And, you know, unfortunately, we don't sometimes have enough class time to talk about these contextual things. But with respect to the criminal law context in particular, uh, the United States has a criminal justice system that uh, kind of by any measure uh, seems like it's probably not functioning well, like it may be bloated. Mm -hmm. 25% of Americans have criminal records. 25% 25 of American adults have criminal records. That's so interesting. And uh, the, uh, the, the 
numbers of people who have felonies is going up exponentially. Uh, people, you may have seen charts showing the rate of incarceration going up, but mm -hmm. uh, also the rates of, of people who are convicted of felonies. And there are a million new felony convictions a year. Now, do you think, I'm going to interrupt you because I have a question about that. This is so interesting. Do you think that's because we have more laws on the book? Do you think it's because people are being more... Uh, that the police are being more vigilant? I mean, is there any explanation? Is it it's cultural? Do you have an explanation for uh, that? Pro well, probably, cultural is probably the broad answer. The more narrow answer is the culture of prosecution. Uh, a, uh, a, a researcher, John Pfaff at Fordham, uh, studied this issue of why incarceration and, and uh, conviction rates are going up and found that uh, 20 years ago and before, Typically, prosecutors would prosecute roughly one-third of the cases that are referred to them. Now it's two-thirds. Hmm. And that makes a big difference. Yeah. Uh, I think the kind of de facto abolition of the jury trial, or the right to a jury trial, because people are punished, really, if, if they demand a jury trial and, and they're not acquitted. Uh, I mean, literally, because their sentences are longer. And, and that's demonstrable. And um, uh, so people are understandably afraid to demand jury trials and uh, uh, that makes possible these enhanced rates of prosecution because uh, the prosecutors don't need the staff that they require for the jury trial. So, I mean, these are factors, but basically a greater proportion of cases are being prosecuted mm -hmm. and cases that prosecutors would handle more informally without uh, at least prosecutions for felonies, certainly, uh, now go ahead and get prosecutors felonies. Wow. Wow. So, uh, but, but part of it's just an attitude towards criminal justice in general. I, I saw a statistic that um, uh, something like 30% of young people are arrested by the time they reach age 23. Now, they're not convicted of crimes, but right. they are arrested for something or well, another. Well, I was arrested for bouncing a check. Well, and, <laughs> I was 20 uh, by accident, but I was. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> one wonders how many of our students uh, Yep. were arrested uh, just for doing dumb teenager things, right. which 40 or 50 years ago, nobody would ever be arrested for. Right. And, uh, um, but, but this is a problem in part because of the collateral consequences, because the people who have these criminal records uh, come out of prison and they find it far more difficult to get jobs. I mean, and there have been studies on the callbacks and so forth. It's just much more difficult to get a job. Uh, and there are a lot of jobs that they're excluded from by law. Uh, they uh, have more trouble getting an education. Uh, loan programs that are generally available are, are not available to them. Um, and um, so, uh, uh, you know, they have these economic disadvantages. And, uh, you know, I would say that, uh, you know, that, that we read that there is a growing opioid crisis and homeless crisis and so forth. How many of those homeless people you think have been in jail? I mean, right. a high percentage of them. Right. And, and so right. we're kind of generating our own poverty. I mean, the prison, you know, the prison system, for better or for worse, you know, maybe it's necessary, but it is an engine of poverty and an engine of, of uh, oh, not to mention creating or ex exacerbating racial, racial disparities. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's, um, so there's a problem there. And there are people nowadays who are calling for something that would have been unthinkable 10 years ago, like abolition of prisons, which I think is not going to happen. Right. Uh, but uh, certainly rethinking sentencing, re, uh, 
rethinking the treatment of offenders, uh, re rethinking alternatives to prosecution. Uh, but I think these are all uh, sort of adjustments around the edges. And eventually there's going to be a, a, a real paradigm shift. And uh, Well, I want to hear about the paradigm shift, but before, before I do, you bring up a really important understanding of what's going on in law school, because in law school what we're doing is we're teaching students the elements of a, of a crime, right? And we're teaching students in first year just to learn them, and then at upper levels you're learning how to prosecute them or how to defend them. But I think that, and this is where what you're saying is so important, is that what it fails to do in some classes is make the nexus between what we're doing and why we're doing it and what the consequences on the greater society is. So whereas we do teach the theories of punishment, we don't teach the consequences of punishment. And I think that to be a good law student, you have to understand not just the elements, which to me is like being an undergraduate, right? You're memorizing what they're teaching you, but to understand where it fits within society. Um, well, well, you do have to understand, uh, I mean, the elements, obviously. Yeah. I mean, that's the starting point. That's kind of like getting the vocabulary uh, so that you can talk about uh, these other things. But the, um, uh, yes, when we study cases in class, I mean, we might study whether a statute ought to be interpreted this way or that way uh, in a given situation, and we look at the words of the statute and, and parse the grammar even sometimes, even the Supreme Court parses the grammar. Uh, and what's really at stake here is not getting a grammatically correct understanding. What's really at stake is whether somebody goes to jail for 30 years or not. Right. And that's going to change that person's life. It's going to change the lives of that person's family members, and mm -hmm. almost all of them have family members. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, a lot of them, you know, hundreds of thousands are mothers of, of children, small children, uh, for example. And, uh, uh, you know, we should be asking ourselves, uh, probably somewhere along the way, whether uh, not just this sentence should be parsed in a certain way in a statute, uh, but what is the overall consequence? How are we adding on to or improving the situation created by the fact that 25% of our population has a criminal conviction? I mean, you make an excellent point. And the point I'm hearing from all of this is when you're reading a case, read the facts in a rich way. Don't just read them so that you can answer the question or the issue. Read them so that you understand the humanity. Right. And I think that'll make you a better law. I know that'll make you a better right. law student. Well, I, you I, read I it always tell humanity. my students, these cases are not about law. They're about people. Right. And you well, learn the law line. about it, but they are about people. And you want to know the people and, and, and what they're like. Now, unlike in your other courses, the people that you meet in criminal cases are generally, they did something pretty bad. Right. Uh, and, uh, and basically it's a question of how bad. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so, um, uh, but, but I, I, I guess the point I would come back to is uh, the, sort of the larger point is that the assumption is, uh, and the overriding assumption that around which all of this turns is that the uh, uh, people being prosecuted for crimes who committed the crimes are bad people and they deserve to uh, undergo punishment, deprivation, and, and you know, deliberate infliction of, frankly, misery at the mm -hmm. hands of the government. 
And, uh, and that's the assumption that I think um, is, is a faulty assumption. It's based on, um, well, the assumption is based on a larger assumption, which is that mental states like intentions and desires and wishes and beliefs and so forth cause and affect human behavior. And the uh, lesson of neuroscience research in the last 30 years or so is that human behavior can be fully explained by purely physiological processes. Hmm. You know, uh, information is taken in by the senses, uh, taken in by the eyes and the ears, it goes to the brain, it gets processed in connection with memories, and based on that, uh, uh, the brain decides what bodily movement, if any, would improve the situation for the, for the individual, and, and the individual does that. Uh, and of course, a lot of those decisions are bad decisions, perhaps we might say, but, but the point is that uh, um, the assumption of that mental states can have any effect on physical events is... Um, almost certainly false. There's no evidence for it. The evidence we think we have for it is not valid evidence. And if you remove that assumption from uh, the underpinnings of criminal justice and, and, and start making criminal justice revolve around cause and not blame, where the question is, what were the causes of this harm? What were the causes of this bad event, crime? and which causes are the easiest and, and sort of most effective to intervene on instead of saying what we say now, which is who is to blame and we'll, we'll deal with that person who's to blame, uh, inflicting some suffering on them and assume the problem solved, uh, when that doesn't solve the problem. I mean, we have a 70%, uh, 75%, I think, uh, uh, recidivism rate in this country. I mean, it's the criminal justice system is like like an organization of dentists that every time you go to the dentist, they put something in your mouth that grows cavities, so hmm. you keep coming back. Hmm. And the criminal justice system kind of grows itself by turning out people from prisons who are going to need the services of the criminal justice system again. And, uh, uh, and, and that doesn't serve anybody. It certainly doesn't serve the people who go to prison, but it doesn't serve the people who become their eventual crime victims either. Because the right. 70% recidivism rate you know, translates to a lot of extra crime victims. Right. Interesting. And, and so I guess that's the paradigm shift of the, is that now we look at blameworthiness and we need to start working at cause. Exactly. Um, so I guess my next question to you would be, when do you think, well, before I ask that, can, is there a hypothetical where you take the same set of facts and you look at it from a blameworthiness situation versus from a from a blameworthiness perspective versus a full a cause perspective I don't know if you can think of well that. almost I mean I think uh, uh, almost any set of facts where uh, we look at, at mental states I think that um, it's probably fair to say that the overall structure of the criminal law would not necessarily change that much if we uh, looked at um, causes rather than blameworthiness because uh, a lot of the sort of markers of blameworthiness like intentionality versus recklessness you know intention and intentional mm -hmm. wrongdoing is considered worse than a reckless which is considered worse than a negligent and so forth I mean those are also markers of dangerousness right and 
no matter what happens, uh, uh, we're, we're probably unfortunately going to have some dangerous people out there, uh, some number, uh, and, and society just can't tolerate letting them go around and prey on people. In other words, the state is going to have to use coercive measures against blameworthy people, or not blameworthy, but, but dangerous people. But by treating them simply as dangerous people, uh, without kind of a moral program attached to that, rather than as blameworthy people who deserve whatever bad stuff they get, uh, could make a tremendous difference in how they're treated. Uh, you know, prison, for example, could be sort of a last resort rather than the default option. Uh, prisons wouldn't be as they are now uh, designed to uh, be callous and indifferent to the misery and, and uh, uh, sort, of, sort of suffering and, and deprivation of the people who are in them. Uh, they wouldn't have, they wouldn't be any, any more miserable places than is kind of inseparable from the fact that uh, uh, there would be a loss of liberty, so people would not be at liberty to hurt other right. people. And, uh, um, you know, and there's no evidence that cushy, cushy prisons uh, result in sort of less effective deterrence. So Norway has some of the cushiest prisons in the world, and uh, uh, they have a recidivism rate of around 20% compared with our 75 Mm -hmm. And um, so, I, you know, I think the main difference is that our, our, our prisons would be sort of more like Norway's and less like North Korea's. Right. And uh, uh, we would uh, uh, look for ways to prevent dangerous people from being dangerous. Uh, I mean, we assume now that, you know, by making them suffer, we'll make them less dangerous. But, I mean... That's not what evidence the case, there is, right? is that, that it, the opposite right. works. Well, it I mean, makes I, it meaner. <laughs> That's, but I see um, you're making a really, I see the point you're making, which is that we don't have a humanitarian approach to criminal law and criminal justice. Or that empathetic. We, or empathetic. And that we treat every single person who kills somebody short of being able to prove insanity, which is... A, difficult to prove, and B, people don't like to use that. The same. And so we're looking at what they did versus why they did it. And with this rise in an understanding of mental awareness, mental capacity, mental health, that we need to start looking at why they did it as much as what they did. That you, you can't treat them all as red apples if some of them right. you know, are Granny Smiths. But, but just to be clear, I'm not talking about excusing no, 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 I know you're not. I, I don't no, think you are. Well, I mean, I'm talking about not blaming in the first place. So here is my question. We, there's a very famous case, People versus Getz, right? Where mm -hmm. Getz was, uh, he was the subway vigilante mm -hmm. back in the 80s where he gets on a train and he sees four youths. It was like my cousin Vinny, four youths. <laughs> four youths. And the youths are going to, or, or say that they, you know, they want some money from him. And he shoots one of them. And while this kid is lying on the ground, he says, you look like you need another shot. And then he claims self-defense. So he's claiming self-defense against a kid who is already writhing in pain from the first shot. I blame him for shooting this kid who didn't need he didn't need to defend himself against, right? So as a law student, I'm going to say, he did this wrong. He doesn't meet the elements of self-defense. 
he can be convicted of assault with a deadly weapon or whatever he was convicted with, probably attempted murder, mm-hmm. I don't remember. How would you look at, in your future, okay. with the paradigm of the future, how would you look at that okay. The way I would look at that is I would say that those events that you described, like all events that occur, are the result of chains of causation uh, that go back in time and, and originated outside of Getz himself. Uh, and um, that, um, uh, but they came together in Getz and, and not all at once either. I mean, some of them probably came together with, in Getz, uh, come in, came into him uh, a few months before when he was the victim of a mugging. Right, which prior the, to well, this, yeah. Well, I mean, and uh, uh, which, which influenced his thinking and, and probably got him to buy the gun uh, uh, but, but nevertheless, um, Getz is, um, is responsible for the conduct in the sense that those causes came together to, in him and changed his physical stuff. So he was the kind of person who would do that act. I mean, we know he's the kind of, cause he did it, right? I mean, that's kind of by definition, they changed him into that kind of a person, mm-hmm. but it came from the outside. I mean, it was it was like you know, bad people went into his apartment at night and changed his brain. Except okay. it didn't happen that way. Right? Yeah, he was uh, living in, in, in where he was living was very dangerous at the time. So all these external forces played right, on his psyche. Right. But you know, so I would say that he shouldn't be blamed for that. I mean, he's responsible in the sense that his body did it. Okay. So he's responsible in the same way as. My flat tire was responsible for me being late to this meeting. Okay. I mean, right. Right. But we don't think the flat tire is blameworthy. It's right. just, you know, just we're just happened. making a statement. Yeah. And, and that happened because of chains of causation that started, you know, before. All right. But we can't ignore the fact that anybody that takes a gun and walks around the subway looking for trouble is yes. a dangerous person. Yes, exactly. Is a dangerous person. Okay. And needs to be dealt with. Um, you know, I would hasten to say that I would limit the fo- even I mean, would limit the focus to convicted dangerous persons because we simply don't have the power really to predict dangerousness in people who have never been dangerous. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, the fact that a person has actually gone over the line once is, you know, ex- an extremely important factor in predicting whether that person will go over the line again. And and but gets. Uh, has gone over the line. In fact, just by carrying the gun, right. he had gone over the line. Right. And uh, you know, he should have. He should have been, um, uh, you know, ideally uh, apprehended for carrying the gun. But maybe he did it stealthily and, and managed not to be seen. But had he been seen, he would have been apprehended right. for carrying the gun, and would have been convicted on a gun charge long before. And uh, but in, in any event, he was a. I mean, he's a dangerous person. Who caused the harm? And obviously, we should we should we should look at that. Uh, but um, um, on the other hand, if uh, let's say he had some sort of little tumor or something like that that caused him to do it, the criminal law would say maybe he shouldn't be blamed. And I would say, yeah, he shouldn't be blamed. I, I agree. But he's still a dangerous person that has to be dealt with. And, you know, it kind of doesn't matter which of those external causes or even internal causes, mm-hmm. uh, let's say extra mental causes, outside of the causes outside of the mind, make a person a dangerous person. The relevant fact is that the person is a dangerous person. And as a society, uh, I think we have a, 
a, a right to deal with this. It's a, that's sort of like the right of self-defense that, um, you know, I would say the first principle of justice should be harm no one or injure no one. But the one exception to that is uh, it is a person does not have a right to injure somebody else. And so the person who is about to be injured has a right to ward off the aggression. And so it, the rule injure no one does not count if all you're doing is preventing someone from injuring you. Okay. Even though you may have to inflict okay. injuries also, uh, but you know, the injury should not be more than is necessary to protect yourself. I mean, you have a, a right to self-defense and it's basically like the common law right is in words, it's not maybe not in practice, but in words, it, you know, the right to self-defense is proportionate. Mm -hmm. You can cause harm to another person deliberately. Right. To the extent, but only to the extent necessary, reasonably necessary, I guess it is, to protect yourself from harm. And that's a, that's a very sensible rule. Right. And uh, it, it provides a basis for you know, what we call punishment, or I would call it just coercive intervention on dangerous people. And, but if our focus is on dangerous people, not blameworthy people, I mean, there are a lot of times that people are blameworthy and not particularly dangerous, and people are dangerous, uh, but uh, maybe not particularly blameworthy. So like, when is like guess with okay. his gun. Okay. He maybe not particularly gun uh, blameworthy for just carrying a gun on the subway. Right. But highly, highly dangerous. Right. It, I mean, if we investigate, so why are you doing that? So because I was mugged, and if I get mugged down. So all right. So so in other words, if you have a, 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 a if the, if there is a recognition or an understanding on the part of society or the part of the jury or the part of the judge, whoever it is, that we understand why you are doing this, right? Then we can't blame you for doing it. But if you do it in a way that hurts somebody, we get to punish you for doing it. Well, I would that, say, no, if you do it in a way that, that evidences dangerousness. If you do it, so if so you, if you if carry you a gun secretly. If you do it in a way that evidences dangerousness, we get a right to intervene with you. I don't know, I wouldn't say necessarily punish. In other words, deliberately making a person suffer misery and, and hardship right, and right. Uh, de deprivation. You know, I'm not sure there's ever a justification for it. I haven't really thought out to the end of that. But, you know, you, usually uh, the, the goal can be achieved, whatever the goal is, uh, without causing the person to suffer the hardship. And, and I might add that if, uh, for example, uh, you know, prisoners cost, what, $40,000, $50,000 a year right. and produce nothing. There's no reason why it couldn't be the other way around. I mean, we don't let prisoners, for example, carry on a business from prison. Right. But why not? And make them pay for the cost of their incarceration. Maybe even the cost of the incarceration. That, that's I mean, it's so, it's so stupid and wasteful. I mean, right. the criminal justice system is like deliberately wasteful because it's right. considered necessary to give people what they deserve. Right. And, you know, I... That, 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 makes, that makes sense. I mean, it, it's an interesting idea. It's a, it's a wonderful concept to think about. And I think that the flavor of this idea is that the criminal justice system on which the foundation didn't have the contemporary understanding of mental... Or neuroscience. Yeah, of neuroscience. Yeah, I mean, right. no, the criminal justice system is based right. on 
what they call folk psychology, and folk psychology is sort of what everybody took for granted, which is that the if you intend if you did something and you felt an intention to do something before you did it, which you know in right. everyday experience of everybody, right. right? That the intention caused the act. Now, right. What else could it be? Right. And what neuroscience has shown is what else it can be. What else it actually almost certainly is, because. Uh, Neuroscience tells a story of cause and effect running, again, from the eyes and the ears, the inputs, you know, through the processing of the brain to uh, outputs to the muscles, mm -hmm. uh, you know, which is behavior. And there's no place in there that a, a mental cause could intervene. I mean, w what's going to happen? Some nerve cell is going to fire uh, when it otherwise wouldn't, and, and a mental cause is going to cause, I mean, that's, that's as spooky as bending spoons. <laughs> and, true. you know, it's, it's just not going to happen. That's and and it, it, the uh, neuroscience explanation leaves no gaps that we need uh, mental causation to fill. I mean, mental causation is a story we tell to fill a gap. Well, what's the gap between intention and action? Right. And we don't have any idea, so we, we make up this story called mental causation to fill that gap but we don't need we no longer need to fill that gap. we have another story to tell and now we, right. that's documented by evidence so there are four i say five theories mm -hmm. of punishment incarceration which means we put them away to remove them from society general deterrence which means we punish people to get the rest of society to realize this is the consequence you can't do it specific deterrence which means we punish you so you don't do it again I like to call that the Martha Stewart theory of punishment, um, and she was also general deterrence too. And then, although, and then um, retribution, which is an eye for an eye, and rehabilitation. The general consensus is that rehabilitation is not really effective. It seems to me, if we think about neuroscience, that rehabilitation becomes more important, and some of them fall by the wayside. What do you think? Well, first of all, let me just interject that uh, it's debatable whether. Rehabilitation is not effective, and the study that is usually cited is from 30 years ago, and it has not been replicated. Let's just put it that okay. way. I mean, there are there are definite programs that uh, not only other countries like Norway, but other states like Vermont use that that are effective. But but in any event, re retribution is based on the concept that people deserve to be punished. And uh, that's based on blameworthiness, mm -hmm. and, and that would just go off the table. Okay. Uh, deterrence, special in general, uh, I think would go off the table also because both of them, as a practical matter, rely on the assumption that the person who is being punished deserves to be punished. We do not think it's okay to make people suffer just because other people benefit. I mean, we don't say it's okay to torture Alice because Ray and his friends get some, you know, a lot of laughs out of it right. and benefit even more. Uh, and, uh, and specifically in the punishment context, we, uh, uh, for example, mostly, but not entirely, reject punishment of family members. I mean, there is a certain tradition, historical, of punishing family members for the crimes of uh, punishing the children for the sins of the parents kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, to quote the Bible on that particular point. Uh, North Korea does it, I, maybe effectively, mm -hmm. I don't know. Uh, but, uh, you know, we, we generally don't, don't think that's right. And um, uh, so, you know, I, I think that, and we, we consider it important to have fair trials to determine who really did it. 
Whereas if we really didn't care uh, whether a person deserved punishment or not, all we'd want to do is have a trial that made it really look like the person right. did it, whether he did it or not. And, uh, and we, and, but we do care. I mean, most people would not say it's okay to disregard fair trials because as long as it deters. Right. Correct. Uh, so I think deterrence goes off the table, okay. too. Okay. Uh, incapacitation, yeah, sort of, obviously. Incapacitation, I mean, kind of that's the whole point. Uh, I mean, there's, there's kind of like brute incapacitation where you put somebody in a cage and they can't do anything to anybody. Uh, but then there are other kinds of incapacitations, too. And, uh, you know, nowadays with uh, GPS and, and, and so forth, uh, uh, and what do you call it? those chips that you implant, can yeah, yeah, R- RDIF yeah. or whatever. Anyway, uh, there there are probably plenty of ways to have very subtle levels of incapacitation to uh, to allow people basically almost maximum liberty, but you do keep them from doing, you know, co- committing the crime. Right. I mean, uh, and uh, you know, they they haven't been explored because nobody thought it was important to explore them. But huh. uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm sure that if somebody thought it was important to explore them, that they would be explored. Um, and if we decided that we had to minimize the hardship uh, that the criminal justice inflicts on those people who have had their bodies commandeered by chains of causation, so, so we, we would explore that. And um, so incapacitation, yes, mm-hmm. but it would be different. And rehabilitation, yes. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, and even if rehabilitation, uh, certainly it doesn't always work. And, but even if it didn't work at all, I think uh, in- incapacitation would change. Uh, whether we do in- rehabilitation depends on our confidence in it, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, in-, in confidence in it with respect to, uh, to that particular... Reliability. Yeah. Confidence in it is reliability, okay. right. Okay. Uh, in other words, if rehabilitation... Could turn non could turn dangerous people into non dangerous people, right? Or some of them, and we could be sure which were which, and so then we do it. Right. Uh, but uh, you know the uh, the sort of the, the marker that we'd always be looking looking to meet is is our response to the problem of criminality something that will minimize the criminal minimize the harm caused by criminality recognizing that that harm occurs not just to victims of the crimes, but also to people who commit them in their families and so forth. I mean, i just make one other point. You can't have a strong country if it's made up of weak people. Those 25 million people who have criminal records, they have been systematically weakened right. in their ability to, to, to make a living, uh, to uh, get housing, uh, and, uh, you know, to... to, to they, I mean, they don't enjoy... The, the full rights of citizenship that mm-hmm. the rest of Americans enjoy. Yeah. I mean, they just don't. There are all kinds of lifetime restrictions. Voting. Uh, and, and, uh, and voting. Yeah. Like, uh, I mean, you know, and, and ones that really affect one's day-to-day life. Yeah. And, and of, of one's children. Right. And, and uh, so anyhow, I mean, if dad can't get a job yeah. or gets fired from the job every time they find out he's got a record, right? Yeah. Uh, that, that affects the kid's ability to buy their school lunches. Right. I mean... Right. Right. So, and, 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 you know, and, 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 and so first of all, this has been very interesting. I think that it's a discussion that listeners will think about as they enter into the criminal classes, which is really important. But I also think that the point you make 
which students, in, especially first-year students, tend to miss, is that there is a humanitarian cost to the people we read about. And what I'm learning today is that humanitarian cost isn't just about Getz or whomever the defendant is. It's about everyone who relies on that defendant, everyone who benefits from the earning potential of that benefit or the love of that defendant. Um, and our country. It doesn't help person. our country to have homeless people on the street. That's right. That's right. I'm taking right. opioids because they can't get a job. That's right. I mean, it's, That's right. That's right. It doesn't That's make right. us a strong country. That's right. And so when, when reading these cases... Read them deeply. Think about them. Reflect about them. Don't just go for the flashcard rule. Right. So, thank you so much, John. This has been really, really interesting. <laughs> thank you. So that's my discussion with John Humbach. Hope you enjoyed it. Once again, a reminder that Kaplan Bar Review is offering you $100 off their live and on-demand bar review program. Just use Leslie 100 as your code when you sign on at www.kaplanbarreview.com. And that's it for this episode of Law of Fact. Enjoy your day.